Hi there, listener. It's Matthew. You've come looking for an episode of the Children's Book Podcast, and you've found it. Hooray! But you're probably wondering why the name of the podcast has changed. After eight years of doing the Children's Book Podcast, I began a new career as head of podcasts at A Kid's Company About, where I now oversee a podcast network dedicated to producing original content that talks up to kids, centers the things going on in their world, and engages and challenges how they see the world and themselves. All of the episodes of the Children's Book Podcast are still here, but now, if you're subscribed, you'll get new episodes of Worth Noting, a kid's podcast about current events, hosted by me. Something for you and the young people in your life to enjoy together. Enjoy this episode, and I hope you'll check out Worth Noting and other podcasts from a kid's company about... How are you? Hi, Matthew. I'm good. How are you? It is wonderful to make your acquaintance. It's so nice to meet you, too. I feel, like, we, see, I feel like we've been hopping around social media around each other, and to finally <laughs> connect feels great. Yeah, it does, and I really appreciate it. You sound super, super busy, and I feel like I'm actually having a slow week for once. So. Oh, I wish. Oh, how I long for <laughs> slow weeks. <laughs> This is the Children's Book Podcast, episode number 636. I'm your host, Matthew Winner. We're on Patreon at patreon.com slash Matthew C. Winner, if you want to support the show. Today I'm joined by Zeta Elliott. Zeta is a force on this earth, and I had the good, great fortune to connect with her to discuss a place inside of me, her new picture book illustrated by Noah Denman. Zeta's passion for writing as both a space for growth and for taking risks has led to her having more than a few really great stories to tell and more than a few friends readily volunteering her name as a truthsayer and a beacon of light. In A Place Inside of Me, Zeta helps readers honor all of their emotions as a community responds to an act of racial violence and the story's protagonist processes the trauma. I can scarcely put into words how a place inside of me moved me, except to say that it's a book I think about and return to even now, a long while after that first read. Please welcome my guest, Zeta Elliott, author of A Place Inside of Me. My name is Zeta Elliott. I use the pronouns she, her. I am a black feminist writer currently living in Evanston, Illinois. I just moved here in August and I love it. I write all kinds of different things. This year, I would have to say I have been writing more poetry than ever. My first book of poems came out in January, Say Her Name, and then A Place Inside of Me, A Poem to Heal the Heart, came out in July, and I just self-published my second collection of poetry, American Phoenix, but I also just adapted the first book of poetry into a stage play, so I'm really excited about talking to a theater producer about that. I think 
writing for me is very much about growth, which means it's about taking risks and experimentation. And I am not a particularly daring person. I'm an introvert. I spend a lot of time alone uh, and I enjoy that very much. So the pandemic in a way has not been as hard on me, I think, as it has been on extroverts or people who need a lot of social connection. Uh, but it has also um, encouraged a lot of looking inward. And so poetry has been helping me to process uh, all of the emotions uh, that I have been experiencing. And I really hope uh, a place inside of me does the same for young readers. Mm, that's it's so wonderful, Zeta. First, welcome. Welcome Thank to the you. podcast. Thank you for <laughs> I, having me. I take for granted that we've been talking for 10 minutes prior to hitting record. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, also to hear that your muse is still with you and you're tapping into that creativity throughout this pandemic. I know that it affects all of us creatives in different ways. Um, really so to know that this has been a, a space where where the quiet has been calling you to create and and to play with poetry in particular, I think is a beautiful thing. I mean, I think that that's also how we make sense of what we're going through. So, so great yeah. that you're exploring it that way. I think crisis activates the imagination for me, certainly. And I remember, I, I do tend to move around a lot. And in 2005, I had just moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, like two weeks before Hurricane Katrina hit. And it was the same sort of scenario, like you're just for a moment, you're frozen and you're traumatized and you don't know what to do. And then, bam, you just get busy, busy, busy. Uh, that was a really pivotal time for me and a really productive time for me creatively. You move around a lot. I what, do. <laughs> what calls you to move around a lot? And I wonder if maybe that's even part of how, your process of creativity, just seeing new sites, yeah. new things. Yeah, you know, I think I come from a family of migrants. My father's a Caribbean immigrant and my mother on her African-American side, um, you know, enslaved people from Philadelphia who bought their freedom and migrated to Ontario, Canada. And on her other side, um, Scots-Irish immigrants as well. So I come from people who move around. Um, and then I was a professor for 10 years and I sort of used being a professor as a way to fund my creative endeavors. <laughs> and so that meant I was not looking for a permanent position. I was looking for temporary positions. So I would take a one-year gig, a two-year gig, a three-year gig. And that meant, you know, at the end of it, you, you were moving on to the next place. So that meant I saw a fair bit of the country. And then I was in Brooklyn, my beloved Brooklyn, for 11 years straight that was the longest time I think I've lived anywhere as an adult. Uh, and then, you know, gentrification started making rents a little bit difficult. And so I moved to Philadelphia for a year. And then I moved to Lancaster for a year to try Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And then I just, you know, middle of a pandemic was like, let me move to Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> I love and here that. I am in Evanston. Yeah, I think it takes actually more creativity to stay in a place and try to reinvent yourself than it does to pick up a move. So in a way, I'm sort of copping out because I'm just like, let's see who I am in Illinois. And then I moved to that place. And of course, I'm an immigrant. I grew up in Canada. And then I, I've been in the US now longer than I than I have um, lived in Canada. But I am always curious to sort of meet myself in a new place and give myself a prod and a nudge to sort of, you know, try something new. Oh, and I love that this place where you were the longest, you call Brooklyn, my mm -hmm. beloved. That's so beautiful. 
Brooklyn's my heart. I know so many people were like, you'll never leave Brooklyn. I can't imagine you leaving Brooklyn because I have all these books that are set in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, and you know what? As soon as I moved, everybody was like, do you miss it? And I didn't. I think if you let go when you're ready, it's not a wrench. And if it's not a wrench, then your heart's okay. And because Brooklyn is my heart, it was the first place I felt I belonged. You sort of just carry that with you wherever you go. Well, talk to me about A Place Inside of Me. Mm. This book that that is a poem that does feel like perhaps it is set in, in Brooklyn. It it feels um, that it's set in a in a it's so weird to talk about books in the pandemic because I, I almost wanted to say it feels like it's set around a lot of people and I'm not used to being around a lot of people. I literally almost said that to you. Yeah. <laughs> but it, yeah. It, it feels like um, it is it is in a, a city where things are happening. Absolutely. Where... Yeah. So I was, uh, you know, I wrote that poem 20 years ago. And at the time oh, I was living in wow. Southeast Ohio because I moved to Ohio, like I think two days before 9-11 in 2001, because I had a dissertation fellowship. So I was supposed to be at this university writing my dissertation, teaching one class on my dissertation, which was on lynching. Uh, and then 9-11 happened and I had started writing for kids, you know, I think maybe the year before. And I just started reading children's books, my favorite books from my childhood as a way of dealing with you know, the aftermath and not being in New York in a time of crisis, that was really hard for me. Uh, and then I was also dealing with some obviously really difficult material in my dissertation. So I, I spent a lot of time reading books for kids and writing for kids. And A Place Inside of Me was one of those um, stories that I wrote, but it wasn't a traditional narrative. It didn't have that kind of narrative arc. So um, I kind of thought of it as something that could be like a calendar, you know, like each emotion could be could have its own abstract art. And I didn't really see it as a story at all, even though my intention was that, you know, I'm dealing with all this graphic um, material around racial violence. And I really, you know, every day thought, how could I make this comprehensible to children? Because I have worked with kids for 30 years and I was working with kids straight through graduate school. And there was a kind of dissonance where you would be in class discussing theory and diving into the archives. And then I'd be, you know, in an after-school program teaching creative writing. And it was, you know, a way of saying, how do I make the work that I do meaningful to everybody in my community? And that included kids. So trying to write about trauma in a way that didn't shame kids, didn't terrify them, um, helped them to process the emotions, the range of emotions you feel, and to come out on the other end healed, if not whole, uh, you know, that was the goal. I think that one, this, this book is, is, is beautiful. It's a, a book Zeta, that I love to read slowly. Yeah. And that I know that, that you as well as a person that reads a lot of picture books, you know, the books are just sort of paced in different ways. And <laughs> sometimes we, we feel the power of the author trying to, slow us down or move us forward or, or what have you. And I think the way that your words and Noah Denman's art here yeah. work together. I mean, Noah's art is so much like murals. It, it yeah, the, the control of color and yeah. the, the blocking of, of really like muted pinks and yellows and blues mm -hmm. 
are just, there's something so beautiful here and the way that she plays with light and, and, and portraits of individuals. It's, it's, it's a beautiful book, but the way also that your words dancing with Noah's art allow a struggle with those emotions to, to own and, and possess those emotions and, and not move fast through them, I think is what really appeals to me, that we sit with each of these emotions and you and the art are not telling us, okay, time to go to the next page. Right. But really just take as much time as you need. Right, right. I mean, I'm, I just feel so blessed that our editor, Grace Kendall, put us together and I cannot believe that that is Noah's debut. Like that know, is her right? first picture book. <laughs> Whoa, um, she absolutely, there's a mural feel to it, but there's also, you know, she captures this fluidity. I just don't know how she did it. Her, her use of perspective and the palette, you know, I'm so much older than her. I'm almost 50. And so I, I remember the colors of the 60s and 70s. And there's something very retro about it, but it's also very hip and contemporary. Um, yeah, I just feel, I feel really blessed. And I do, I think every time, I'm reading it aloud, uh, you know, it's hard for me to turn the page because I just want to stop and say, let's look at, and did you notice, and so many of the details. And the truth is, Grace Kendall gave me so um, many opportunities to give input, and that does not generally happen with picture books. Uh, now, when I'm self-publishing, I call all the shots, and I, I get exactly what I want because I'm the client, and I'm working with a freelance uh, illustrator. But in a traditional publishing situation, you know, they generally try to keep author and artist apart. So I wasn't speaking directly to Noah, but I got to see all of the sketches and all of the stages and then the finished pictures. And I could still say, can we add this? Could we tweak this? Could we try this? And Noah was always amenable. So I just feel really blessed that uh, I got to work with an illustrator whose vision so nearly matched my own. It's I mean, it's just amazing to me. Yeah. The stunning illustrations that are that are both imagery as well as actual like captured faces, portraits, moments. There's a setting to each. There's a setting and composition that 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 calls us to just pay attention. It's it's beautiful. I mean, I think even from. Do you mind if I read to you a little? Is that a, is that a not book? at all? I would love to read just two stanzas, maybe or maybe three, because I. Or maybe the whole book. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm like, do I stop at fear? Do I keep going? Where do I go? Um, <laughs> so if, if I start just a couple pages in, it reads, There is joy inside of me, a happiness deep down inside of me that glows bright and warm as the sun and shines delight on everything I see. There's sorrow inside of me a sadness deep down inside of me that is cold and dark and as a and as a watery grave at the bottom of the sea there is fear inside of me a terror deep down inside of me that stalks me like a sinister shadow and seeps like poison into my dreams mm. and those three emotions that we walk through one two three there go from really this like bright sunny moment on a basketball court mm -hmm. where um 
where in this mural too you have like all these roses with this hand outstretched right Mm -hmm. this like giving of beauty a giving of joy to immediately on the turn page uh a note at a barber shop of everyone watching this television of of the news saying that a girl is shot um Mm. and how powerful that we go from it's not the same girl but that we go from uh, a, a female presenting child on the basketball court to all of these eyes on this television um framing this this small image of of this girl shot um and then to take it into fear and really take away all of the colors on the page uh except for what when i read it what might be interpreted as these red and blue lights such as from an ambulance passing or a police car passing Uh it's just it's yeah it's 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 powerful it's very powerful yeah yeah noah just she nailed it i mean and the incredible thing is that some of the people i found out recently because i just met her last week on a webinar uh is that she used some of her um family photos uh to model the faces that are in the book so she really she said it really resonated with her on a personal level um, and, you know, originally the stanzas were in a different order and Grace and I had to work together to say, all right, if it's going to be a narrative, because it was Grace's idea to have it be something revolving around a protest against police brutality. Uh, and, you know, we were sort of tiptoeing around each other. And finally I said, you know, we have to change the order of the stanzas. And she <laughs> said, oh, are you willing to do that? And I was like, of course, you know, it's going to make a better story. And once we did that, then it started to feel more like it did have an arc to it. Um, and, you know, yeah, we, we pretty much jumped right into your carefree and happy one moment. And that's such a rare thing for so many kids of color in this country. Um, you're happy and carefree and innocent. And then, bam, right, while you're getting your hair cut and the barbershop is this place of fellowship and communion. Um, and then suddenly there's this report. Uh, and then the boy's world sort of gets turned upside down and he's going through this range of emotions. But at, at, you know, the midway point in the book, there's a sort of pivot and he starts reaching back to the ancestors and here are the people, you know, who have come before me, who have overcome. And then the community comes together and then, you know, he remembers to love himself. Right. And I think that's really important right now is that I always write in the book, you know, honor all your emotions Whatever you're feeling, just let it come out and be okay with it. You don't have to be ashamed of it. Um, you know, it's it's difficult under any circumstances in a patriarchal society for boys to express weakness and vulnerability and fear. Um, but in this particular moment, you know, we've got the pandemic, we've got the protest against police brutality. We have so many things happening all at once. I just really feel like the mental health of all of us, but our kids especially, is so precarious and we really just have to say whatever you're feeling right now it's okay hey there book nerds you want to know what's even better than hearing bookmakers share stories of how their ideas became the books you love having those stories in your home your classroom your library or your life to be enjoyed over and over bookshop.org allows you to purchase your favorite books from the show and support local bookstores while doing it. 
I even maintain lists of the books shared each season, so it's easy to find what you're looking for. Visit MatthewCWinner.com and click on Shop, or use the link in the show notes to find your next favorite story. Whatever you're feeling right now, it's okay. Right. It's okay. Yeah. I'm feeling it too. You know, I. it's been the past maybe five years, I've started to, to talk more openly about my own mental health. And, you know, I started having problems when I was a teenager um, and didn't know that that ran in my family, didn't know I had this whole history, a connection to my grandparents who were also struggling with depression and anxiety. Uh, so I think that the sooner we start talking about it with kids, the sooner we can start providing them with tools to help them navigate their own way towards mental health. Yes, being able to name those mm-hmm. feelings is so important. And and similarly to the way that, that you restructured that poem for the book to go from fear to anger to hunger to change things to a feeling of being free and then looking mm-hmm. back with pride ancestors, I feel like all of that is... You show this, we talk about the, this overused phrase of a roller coaster of emotions, but we almost say that as like some derogatory thing instead of mm-hmm. acknowledging that like, no, that's the way we go through emotions. That's that's the right way. Right. That you don't acknowledge and move past a feeling. You, you allow it to live in you until it's ready to go. That's for me why um, as much as we have... Um, all of these different words in this book to to have a, a space at the end uh, to use birds to show this Ooh. this freedom this 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 I don't know this being able to 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 get up above things and see things with perspective exactly and to see it all connected. Yeah, you know, my first book was called Bird. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I used to get so many questions of people saying, you know, I'm noticing a theme throughout your body of work. You seem obsessed, obsessed with birds. And I, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm obsessed. I absolutely love birds. Today I was just on a walk with Cosby Cabrera, who lives here in Evanston, <laughs> and we saw a falcon. And we were like, is that a falcon? <laughs> wow. And it just perched in a tree. It flew past us and perched it. And we just watched it for a little while. But, you know, the sparrow is such a humble, everyday bird. And I think so often people, uh, especially city dwellers, we're sort of, city dwellers can be a bit obnoxious about nature. And, you know, they don't like rats and they don't like squirrels and they don't like pigeons. And I'm just like, you know, <laughs> you're sharing space with other living creatures. And these are hardy creatures, right? They're making a life in a place that's rather inhospitable at times. And I just think birds represent transcendence, you know, they do, they are able, they're on the ground pecking at something in the gutter. And then the next instant they're high above you in the trees or in the clouds. And I just think it's a, it, birds are the perfect reminder to look up. They're the perfect reminder, you know, that when you're walking with your head down and maybe you're feeling down, um, keep your eyes open and look for the signs. I have a poem about that and say her name, you know, look for the signs of survival. And birds, to me, the last of the dinosaurs, they're the ultimate sign of survival. That is beautiful. <laughs> oh, my word. Um, it's beautiful. And and if I can just take a moment, it makes me think of my grandmother. Mm. And uh, it brings me to a moment of sitting 
on her porch and watching mm-hmm. or listening to birds and having mm-hmm. her name them. Yes. And and <laughs> making that connection with my grandmother of oh that that is a sparrow or that's a cardinal and it makes that's this cardinal, noise. Right. And, right. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. That's so funny. My mother used to do that. And then my grandmother said to me once when I was talking about cardinals, she said, oh, you get that from my father. Oh. <laughs> so apparently her, her my great grandfather was also a bird, a bird person. So it's been passed down in our family, too. I love when we claim the beauty in that way. This yeah. is a beautiful thing. And you get that from from me, from my family, from whomever that came before me. That's such a beautiful mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the um, thinking about the children that I teach and thinking about the black and brown children that I teach and thinking about when we celebrated International Dot Day at the beginning of the school year and how many of them uh, when said, we can make this dot about whatever you want, how it can be a message to the world and three, no less, made BLM dots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think about how, as you said, it's, it's, you talk about young readers that, that they're ready to talk about this and they want to engage in this. And this is, this is a truth that they, that they want to be seen. Right. A- yeah. Among other things. I know when I am in this space with them and you work with students too, it's, it's a hallowed space that, that I'm honored to be, to, to share the space with them. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. to have books like this, where, where just to lay it out, Zeta, I love, I think maybe most of all about your book that though it, it, it ends on this space of going through these emotions and knowing that there, there will be a time when there's that space for love and setting free. It doesn't ever, again, make any expectation that you need to get there, but, and you need to get there by the end of this book. Right. And now we're right. better. But that, by the end of the week or by right. the end of the day or by the end of the year. Yeah. Rather, the promise that it will be there waiting for you when you get there, but that mm. we might not be there yet. And I think of how many children are thinking a lot about the election or the mm-hmm. pandemic or our our uh, teaching circumstances, whether virtual or physical. Right. Um, and I think that in a space that that for some children was already so hard to be seen, um, we we now are worried about so many other priorities that I think it's easy to say, well, yeah, this one thing was really important, but we do have this election we have to worry about. Or we do have this other thing we have to worry about, a very privileged um, worries to take us away from mm-hmm. from seeing our children. I don't really know what I'm trying to say here, other than I'm recognizing that there's a message in your book that is that has taken root in me, and that mm-hmm. I think what I what I want to do is just say thank you because your mm. uh, book has given me even more so some of those words and a shared story to be able to have this space with my readers where we can talk about things or we don't even need to talk in some cases because we've shared the moment through your story. And so I think what I'm trying to say is thank you. Oh my goodness. Well, thank you, first of all, for having the courage to share this book with your students, because I'm pretty sure 
there are some educators out there who, you know, maybe are nervous or anxious about touching it because it does have a Black Lives Matter um, logo on several of the pages. And it is about, you know, a community responding to an act of police brutality. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. I think there are a lot of kids who want to have these conversations, not only kids of color. You know, I think there are a lot of kids who need to have a conversation because kids are so keenly aware of what is fair and what is unfair. And when they look at what's happening in our country right now, I think a lot of them see the injustice and they want to know why. And that is a difficult conversation for adults to have. It can be really uncomfortable. But if adults can sit with that discomfort, you know, and can admit to kids, I don't know why. How could we find a solution together? I think that's really what I want the message of the book to be, is that when you do feel alone or when you do feel frustrated or you're anxious or scared, there are people you can turn to, right? I always think about that beautiful um, quote that Mr. Rogers shared that his mother had said to him, look for the helpers, right? Look for the helpers. There's always going to be someone there who will help. Yes, I think too... I mean, this is a book that that confronts a, a girl being shot. We don't mm-hmm. see that happen, but through the rest of the book, this boy, um, you, the the main protagonist, uh, is is seeing the world uh, through that recent lens, or being reminded through that mm-hmm. that recent lens. And I have to say too, when I've shared this with with classes, right away they guess at who that girl might be, mm. and I think that that just communicates or it's them communicating a a connection that they know that this is there's there's a a significant part of this book that while illustrated is absolutely nonfiction. it's absolutely um a depiction of a lived experience and that that that's something that we can talk about um and and quite frankly the way we talked about it was well why actually do you think they didn't name the the girl in Mm. the story right wow Um, great question and that's just a space that well i mean that's that's you that's the space that you saved for readers and that's the space that noah Mm -hmm. saved for them and that's the space we're always hoping is saved for readers in their story so i mean Mm -hmm. this is a book that we we can do like four more podcasts after this continue (laughs) talking about (laughs) i have a feeling that every time that i continue to read this over the years with students it's going to reveal something different because of that child and how their lived experience whether or not they they see themselves as Uh, any of the characters in the book or not, the way that their lived experience um, intersects with this book. It's just going to be uh, something that that is a gift that I'm grateful for. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for saying that. I do hope it's it's a book that stands the test of time. Sadly, it will probably still be relevant in our country for a long time to come. I mean, uh, so... I, we recently did an episode of, it's not often when I reference the other podcast on the podcast, but we recently did an episode of, of, of our book riot podcast, Kitla these days, where mm-hmm. we were talking about, um, self-publishing and yeah. how that, that is a, especially when researched and done well, that is such a, 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 a great way to get stories out that publishing might not say yes to and then I read this amazing article by you and it was turned on to you and your your 
um, work by so many of my, my friends and colleagues. I would love, if you don't mind, this is sort of taking a pivot, I suppose, but can you talk a little bit about about your um, choice to self-publish some of your works and and what freedoms that it has afforded and, and also what maybe drove um, you to make those decisions? Sure. Uh, I mean, I have to say it didn't feel like a choice when I, I started. That's what I gathered from the article. So, <laughs> yeah, so... In 2008, you know, my first picture book came out, illustrated by Chandra Strickland, published by Lee and Lowe, and I had won a contest. That was how uh, the book got published. And then we won all these awards and honors, and I had 20 other stories in my hard drive uh, and just thought, well, obviously, you know, agents are going to want to talk to me. I've got this award-winning book, and I have a PhD in American Studies, and I've worked with kids for 30 years, and and there was just nothing. And, you know, I knew what the myth of meritocracy was, but it suddenly it was just staring me in the face. And my cousin said, well, why don't you consider self-publishing? And I immediately did what most people do, which is I looked down my nose and said, oh, I would never do that. You know, I'm not going to be the person hawking books at the back, at the trunk of their car. You know, that's, <laughs> that's not who I am. And I shouldn't have to do that. You know, I was, I was quite indignant. And then I had another friend, Pamela Booker, who had published, self-published a book, and it was a beautiful book, and it was worth reading. And I just thought, well, you know, if I, if I wait for the traditional publishing industry to open the door, I'm going to be waiting forever, because I did everything right, and I got this award-winning book, and they still don't want my work. And then, you know, you look at the CCBC statistics, and you realize... Mm-hmm. Oh, it's it's not personal. It's not like that they just don't like Zeta Elliott's writing. They don't publish black people generally. Um, and so once I understood that and I figured out how print on demand technology works, where you don't have to have a whole lot of money up front and you're only printing the books that you need. Uh, you know, like in 2014, I made nine books and it was sort of like such a high <laughs> Because it is so empowering when you operate outside of the system. The system really requires that authors be subordinate and dependent. And when you become independent, when you become an indie author, then you are penalized for that because the system requires you to be subordinate and that's not who I am and they want you to be dependent. And so it is a system. Once you publish an indie title, you know, In order for libraries, most libraries to acquire a book, they want it to be reviewed in one of the five major outlets. But those outlets mostly won't review self-published books unless you pay an exorbitant fee. So you can't get your book reviewed. You can't get your book into libraries. Indie bookstores want support against, you know, corporate booksellers, but they won't support indie authors. They don't want to carry indie books. So, you know, there were a lot of closed doors. But like you said, this network that we share of these incredible kidlit scholars and librarians and educators and parents. You know, there are so many people who are hungry for stories that the traditional industry simply doesn't supply uh, because they're not that interested in, in the entire readership market. You know, they're only really thinking about white middle-class readers. And so uh, if you're writing a story that may or may not appeal to those readers, uh, the publishing industry, you know, they're not going to market specifically to African-Americans or to Asian-Americans or to indigenous readers. They're, they're looking for stories, what they call is, quote unquote, universal appeal. Hmm. But what that really means is it's going to appeal to a white middle class reader. Uh, so once I got the hang of publishing, you know, so I did nine books the first year and then five books the next year and then four books the next year. And I just keep going because I uh, my friend jokes that I, I drop books the way Prince drops albums. 
So if anyone who is a true hardcore Prince fan, you'll know that he had masses and masses of records. Um, and then he died with, you know, a vault full of a more vault. material. Yes. Right. And I am just determined not to die with a vault full of stories. I still have 20 picture book manuscripts on my hard drive and my agent, God bless her. She's trying so hard and we just sold one. But, you know, so I'm writing new work. Plus, I have all these other stories. So like, yeah, a place inside of me, that story, I wrote that in 2001. And it just, like so many others, it sits there on my hard drive until I either decide, okay, I'm going to hire an illustrator and make this into a book, and I'm going to try to market it and promote it myself. I've got a, a picture book that I did in May on my block, and I've got another picture book, Roots Run Deep, that I'm hoping to get out this month. Um, you know, I try to do what I can, and my agent tries to do what she can. And it's not about vanity. I know people think self-publishing is just, you just want to see your name in print. But if you're really trying to meet the needs of the kids in your community and the industry says we don't care about your community, then you don't have a whole lot of options. So these days I kind of have a list and I know which titles my agent might possibly sell. <laughs> and I send those to her and the things I know she can't sell, I don't even bother. You know, I just I know that that's a book I'll have to make myself. The the myth of publishing is something that that I was, you know, I came up in in library school and in um you know going to conferences and things like that this this notion that well the good books get all the stars in the reviews and get this and get that and um it took me it took me waking up years ago and it took me auditing not only this podcast but the collection that I that I work in and the the books I was reading and ultimately reviewing or um auditing the the list of stars that the um that the um review journals were giving to realize mm -hmm. oh they're they're t if i have this limited budget and um my um my county is saying you know you have this limited budget but we've made a list of all of the here's the five review sources we've gathered together all of their best of the year all their starred stuff you could right. just order straight from this list when i realized um, that list itself was uh, heavily skewing toward white authors. Um, mm -hmm. It just was like, oh, I, I, I uh, <laughs> this is what I'm willingly participating in because I'm not researching myself. And I went um, similarly on the same journey with self-publishing that I think that there are, it allows um, some barriers to drop by, by choosing to self-publish. Some more people can publish books, but it, it also, um, I think, gets this this bad rap of, like, well, people do that because they just want to sell books to their, you know, aunts and uncles and whatever. Right, right. Um, when truly some of the most beautiful books I've read have come from those folks that were like, hey, look, nobody would publish this, so I mm -hmm. did it myself because it's important and I never saw myself as a child Exactly. Um, and so I'm not going to have a publisher tell me that I'm not important enough to be published. Exactly. Yeah, I'm so glad. Thank you, first of all, for doing the audit. <laughs> and thank you for recognizing that, you know, there is a system. And if you don't operate within the system, there are penalties for that. You know, it's been really frustrated. So A Place Inside of Me came out, you know, in the middle of these massive uh, worldwide protests against police brutality. And we only got two reviews and we got zero stars. 
And so that sort of sets you, yeah, that sets you up for the path of you're not going to get nominated for an award because awards committees are probably paying attention to reviews and stars. And, you know, let's face it, a lot of kidlit people do that because they don't have time. They don't have time to read everything that's getting published. Sure. So they are trusting these review outlets to, to pick the best books and to give them honest reviews. Um, yeah, but what you end up seeing is that if your book doesn't get reviewed and it doesn't get any stars and then it doesn't get nominated for an award and if it doesn't get an award, it doesn't get the shiny sticker on the cover and then it goes out of print. And we so, hide behind, if I can just say, I apologize, I cut you mm-hmm. off, I'm sorry. That's okay. But if I can just say we also hide behind many, many library systems across the nation hide behind, well, it has to be professionally reviewed so mm-hmm. that we know what age it's for so that if mm-hmm. it's challenged... We can say, yes, but this book was professionally reviewed. I feel like when I stepped back from that and realized we are really feeding ourselves a bunch of crap (laughs) to think (laughs) that like, oh, so one person, one person who looked, because I used to write reviews for SLJ and, and they have a great team there, but to know that like, wow, I have a lot of power because when my review is published, it's published on behalf of their magazine but it's one person reviewing it Mm -hmm. and i have the power to make someone buy a book or not it was wild that's very wild i've been saying you know when people keep asking me you know what can we do to help ensure that we maintain a focus on social justice in in publishing and in all these other areas um and you know it's, it's, it's so important, I think, to talk to kids about power. Like, I think that it's really useful to keep that framework that Ibram Kendi X established between, you know, saying I'm not a racist and saying I'm anti-racist. And so if you're saying, well, I'm not a racist, I just bought a book by and then fill in the blank of a BIPOC author, that's great. But if you aren't actually talking to your kids about how publishing operates, then you're not being anti-racist. Because if you do a home audit and you pull all the books off your shelf at home. First of all, if you're privileged enough to have books at home. Have books at home, I know, right? Right? (laughs) Um, You know, pull the books off the shelf. Figure out how many are about people of color, how many are about various genders, how many are about people with disabilities, and then how many are by those same groups, right? It very quickly becomes evident that everybody isn't getting an equal opportunity to tell their story. And who gets to make that decision, right? Who decides what books are read in your classroom? Who decides what books are in your library? Who decides what books are in the bookstore? And it really does come down to a very small handful of people. A small, like most library systems, you probably know this, public library systems, it's one or two people who order for the entire system. The entire system, yes. The entire system, right? So, yeah. It's a lot of power to concentrate in very few hands, and that's never a good thing. Yeah, we love to play the game, too, of, like, who is the gatekeeper? Who's allowing? And it's like, this is just this is just pointing fingers, because the thing is that we, we have the responsibility ourselves. We can blame publishing for not publishing enough uh, books by BIPOC authors and, and illustrators. And then they would just as quickly say, well, those books... I don't know, those books don't sell or we don't have this or we don't like everyone wants to blame everyone else. It can um, become circular very circular, quickly. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I'm I, I had some issues with Random House. They published my Dragons in a Bag series uh, and I ended up walking away from their last offer. And then I wrote them a letter saying, here are the here's the reasons why I'm walking away. 
And then they asked me to come back to the table and they were like, you know what, we are so, so sorry and we can do better. And, nice. you know, I have now been assigned the executive publicist <laughs> for the children's division after not even knowing the name of my publicist for the last two Dragon books. So uh, we're meeting on Friday to talk. And, you know, one of the things we're going to have to talk about is how are you planning to market this book to black readers? And how can you do that when your entire marketing team is white? Right. So yes. what do I have to do as a black author to make sure that you understand here's how to reach the members of my community? Because most I would argue most people in my community don't know anything about me or my books. They just don't. The, it's very. Yeah. Wow. We have a lot more to talk about, but <laughs> I can feel it. Ooh, ooh, I can feel it. Um, <laughs> but to to stay in this space of of every choice we make, every book we share, every conversation we have with readers, every um, you know, question we allow to be asked in our class, every one of these things communicates our values. Mm -hmm. right? uh, and whether we know it or not, and whatever anti-racist buttons we're wearing or, or book clubs we're hosting or, mm -hmm. um, you know, tickets you get to Ibram Kendi's you know, coming to your public library and whatever. Um, it, it's really our, our, our small moments that communicate our values. And I'm grateful that I'm grateful that you are not only a person that, that will go and demand to be treated the way that you deserve to be treated, but mm -hmm. also that, I guess another thing that just resonated with me as you were sharing that story was that, yeah, but this is exactly what you're doing for our readers in a place inside of me of saying like this, you deserve to know that like you have these emotion emotions or friends that you know, or maybe kids you don't know that don't look like you have these emotions. And that's a beautiful and complex thing mm -hmm. and not something that's bad to know that like, we have this, that, that white people, we, I'm saying we, um, that white people have um, this like knee jerk bias to black boys being dangerous mm. and, 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 and all that, all that that translates to the classroom to like suspending black boys more or right. even like policing the classroom on who's calling out or whatever mm -hmm. to know that, that that we can speak up and that children can speak up and, and they can also demand of the adults that they are with that those adults do better too. Kids can't leave our classroom, but they, I feel like, I, I hope um, that we teachers can allow a space for them to demand better of us. Yeah, they should have a voice, right? They should have a say in how learning is taking place and how people are relating to one another and respecting one another. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Zeta, this has been lovely and I truly do feel like <laughs> you and I will stay in contact for I a long so. time ahead. I do hope so. I really yeah, I do. It's been great. Um I want to leave this I love that we are in this space of just feeling like we could talk forever and I hope that the listeners also feel that way. And yeah. so I think this is a great time for me to close and to bring us to those readers so that we can leave thinking 
of them. And so I'll say that I will see a library full of children tomorrow morning. Is there a message that I can bring to them from you? Yeah, I definitely would love it if you would tell them from me, please be gentle with yourself right now. Be gentle at all times, really, but especially in this difficult moment. Be gentle with yourself and be gentle with those around you uh, because some of us are feeling very vulnerable and fragile and frightened. And sometimes all it takes is a very small act of kindness to simply look at someone in their face so that they know they're seen, to be quiet and listen while someone is trying to express their feelings. You know, I think these are the things that we can do for one another. Um, So yeah, that's what I would ask you to pass on. Be gentle with yourself, be gentle with each other. The Children's Book Podcast is recorded and produced by me, Matthew Winner, in my library studio in Ellicott City, Maryland. You can subscribe to the podcast and access the archive of over 600 episodes at matthewcwinner.com. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear, care of the free music archive. All views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the individuals and don't reflect the ideas or viewpoints of the publishers of the books referenced. Want to help out the show? Become a patron, and you can directly impact and help to sustain the podcast. Writing a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast with friends through Facebook, Twitter, word of mouth, or any other means helps reach more listeners, which leads to more content and more amazing guests. And that is a very good thing indeed. We know you value what you put in front of your kids, especially when it comes to screens and podcasts. That's why we're excited to share a new podcast from our friends at Sleepiest, creating bedtime stories to help your kids fall asleep fast. Hello, Abby here. If you've got children and find bedtimes a struggle, I'd like to tell you about Coco Sleep, a children's story podcast designed to make bedtime a dream. Coco Sleep turns a chaotic bedtime into cosy bonding time. The stories are delivered in a pace that gently slows. Rumour has it that no one's ever heard an ending. So search Coco Sleep on your favourite podcast app and let's make bedtime a dream. That's K-O-K-O Sleep and I'll see you there.